Amen. Uh, we'll ask you to uh, turn your Bibles with us tonight to John chapter 20. We're going to finish John tonight. We've got two chapters to go. How many of you think I can do that? No hands on that one. Okay. Um, well, we will. Chapter 20 is about the resurrection of Jesus, and chapter 21 is all about serving Jesus. It's about uh, Jesus giving us some examples of service. And there's really not much you can add to the resurrection story, so there won't be, uh, there'll be a few comments we make, but, uh, but it'll go pretty quickly. So let's start in chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. We'll read down through verse, um, to the end of verse 9, and uh, then we'll stop and make some comments. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre. And seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. And said unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him and went into the sepulchre and seeth the linen clothes lie. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple when he came, which came first to the sepulchre and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. A couple of things I want you to notice. First of all, it starts off in verse one says, uh, then comes the first day of the week. It's interesting to notice that John is, uh, uh, omitting certain things about the resurrection story because as, uh, as we've said over and over again, John's writing this some, um, 30 years, I'm sorry, some 60 years after Jesus was raised from the dead. It's about 90 or to 95 AD when he's writing this story and Jesus uh, was crucified in about 32, 33 AD, somewhere around there. And so it's, uh, it's about a 60 year span between the time that uh, John experienced these things and he's inspired by the Holy Ghost to write and give us an account of it. And he leaves out a lot of stuff. For example, it says that uh, that Mary Magdalene came on the first day of the week. The indication there is it's a new beginning. The indication there is it's it's not the Jewish Sabbath anymore. It's not about the Sabbath day. It's the beginning of the week. The first day of the week is the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, and so that's the start of of the new um, uh, the start of that which is important, rather than the Jewish calendar and the Jewish uh, Sabbath, which everything revolved around. And notice it says Mary Magdalene came. And, uh, she saw, uh, she saw that the sepulcher, that she looked into the sepulcher and saw that the stone was taken away. And then she ran to Simon Peter and uh, to John. Matthew tells us in chapter 28 and Luke tells us in chapter 24 that there were angels there that met Mary, uh, Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. That there was more than just, just Mary there. Now, John gives us a hint of that when he says that, uh, in chapter, in verse two, the end of verse two, uh, Mary says they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher and we know not where they have laid him. Well, who's we? We must have been the other people that were there. But John leaves out some of that information. He didn't say anything about the angels, the two angels that appeared outside the, the sepulcher. It doesn't tell us about the stone rolling away. It doesn't tell us about the earthquake. It doesn't tell us about any of the other things that some of the other gospel writers tell us. Because John's purpose is to tell us the story of Jesus and Jesus relating to the individual. He's told, he's told us about Jesus being rejected by the Jewish nation. He's given us a lot of that information. But now, and from the point in time that he turned away from the Jews and toward the Gentiles, specifically 
uh, toward his disciples, spent the last part of the, the book with uh, uh, the gospel account with his disciples. It's all about Jesus in the individual, not Jesus in the crowds. And so he identifies Mary as the one that's representing the others that were there. But the story is about Mary because something happens that's personal for her. So she runs to Peter and John and says, uh, the, the, the tomb is empty. We don't know where they've taken him. He's gone. We don't know where they've taken him. And then Peter and John take off running. John outruns him. Notice it says when he gets there, John gets there in verse 5, and he says in stooping down, notice it says in looking in. Well, we know he looked in, but the translators added that. What it literally says is in stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying, yet he went not in. Now, there's three words for seeing that are used here in the next couple of verses, and they're all different words. This first word, he looked in, or, or what we assume that he looked in, he stooping down saw. That means a casual glance. It means something that you just glance at momentarily. Then it says Simon Peter came in verse 6 and went into the sepulcher and seeth the linen clothes lie. Here's another word for seeing, and this means he really searched it out. He scrutinized it. In other words, it's not a casual glance. It's something he looked long and hard at. Then it goes on and says that he saw the linen clothes lie and the napkin that was about his head uh, not lying with the linen clothes but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also the other disciple. Now John finally goes in which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw. Here's a third word for saw. Now, this word saw means to perceive and understand. There was something about this that John saw that was different than the first time he got there when he got there first. What did he see? Notice it says he saw the linen clothes lie. Did you see that? It says they both saw that. It says Peter went into the sepulcher and saw the linen clothes lie in verse 6, and the napkin which was about his head not lying with the linen clothes but wrapped together in a place by itself. When it talks about the linen clothes, the word that's used literally means rolled up together, meaning in its original position. You remember in John, in uh, Matthew chapter 28, in verse, uh, I think it's verse 6, it says that the two angels met Mary and Joanna and Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of Jesus and Mary Magdalene and Joanna, those three, met them going unto the, to the, uh, the tomb. Now, the reason they were going to the tomb is they were going to finish the embalming process. Now, what part of the embalming process had not been completed? The face. Everything else, it tells us that Nicodemus and and, uh, Joseph of Arimathea have already gasped for the body of Jesus from Pilate, and they wrapped him up. What that means is they took these claws, as they learned from Egypt, the burial process and ritual in Egypt, they took these claws, these long strips, and they wound them tightly together, and then they put these, this ointment on them and hardened them up. But they wouldn't do the face until after three days or on the third day. Now, when it says he saw the linen clothes lying, you remember when Jesus uh, raised Lazarus from the dead, he said, loose him and let him go. How did Lazarus come out if he wasn't loose? When Jesus stood before the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus came forth in a mummy form. You remember that was one of the things that, uh, that Mary was concerned about, or I'm sorry, it was Martha that was concerned about when Jesus said, roll away the stone. He said, Master, he's been dead for four days. What does that mean? The embalming process has been completed. By now he stinks. In other words, the decomposition has already taken place. That's the whole reason for the embalming or the, the, the mummification process. I say embalming, but it's really mummification. That's the reason they did that, to slow down the decomposition process. But in that part of the, the, uh, the world, when it's hot and humid and so forth, they know that things have already begun to take place. 
Well, that's what Mary and these other women have gone to the tomb to do. But where it says in Matthew chapter 28, again, I think it's verse 6, where the angel says, come and see where the Lord lie. Come see where he lay. Something to to that effect. It's not talking about look at the empty tomb. It's talking about look at the mummy that Jesus stepped out of and left behind. When it says that John looked in, finally looked in, Peter scrutinized it. John finally goes in and perceives. He understands. Well, what does he understand? He understands that here's the mummy, the empty shell. Jesus is not in it. And there's nothing that could have taken place, nothing that could have caused that, except that a miracle take place. That's when he believed. Notice the end of verse uh, verse 8. Let me read verse 8 again. Then went in also the other disciple, John, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw... He perceived. Now he understands something. It was a casual glance to begin with. Maybe maybe when he looked in, he couldn't tell that Jesus wasn't in there. Maybe he didn't look at the face that was uncovered. Maybe he just saw the, the form of the mummy that's laying there in the sepulcher, and he didn't think anything about it. Maybe that's why he didn't go in to begin with. But when he saw the second time, now he perceived something, and he believed. What he saw then caused him to believe. What did he see? He saw that the, that the grave clothes were empty. Now, folks, don't get the idea that they were things that Jesus took, got up and took off and unwound and laid over here in a pile. That's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word means they were still in their original position or condition. Just like Jesus passed through the walls when he appeared to the disciples in a few verses, he passed through the mummies, the mummification process, and sat, now here's a shell, a body a shell of grave clothes in the form of a body, but there's no body in it. How could that happen? How would that be possible? That's what John saw and believed. Now, can I ask you a question? Why didn't Mary go in? Why didn't it tell us? Why does none of the, neither, any of the gospel accounts, none of them tell us that the, that the women went in? Why? You remember the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Remember that scripture? Well, we take that to mean let every doctrine, let every Bible doctrine be established by a, a number of different scriptures, and that's accurate. That's that's uh, one of the meanings for it. But the the original meaning, the original reason that it was given let, by the, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established, women couldn't be witnesses. These had to be men. So when Mary's standing outside, not going in and going to tell Peter and John, it took Peter and John together as the two original witnesses to confirm for a truth that Jesus is risen from the dead. And this gospel account, some 60 years after the resurrection of Jesus, is his written account of that witness that he gave. If you look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you'll find out that when Paul is talking about when Jesus appeared and who he appeared to, none of the women are ever mentioned. Yet we're going to see in just a minute that he appears to Mary. Why were the women never mentioned when it talks about Jesus appearing after his resurrection? Because it was about men, that part of the world, in that part of the world, and it's still a lot that way now in some other countries other than uh, other Middle Eastern countries except for Israel. Women don't count for much. And so it was all, it was left completely up to what did the men say about it. That's why Peter and John were the ones to go in and not marry. Now in verse 10 it says, Then the disciples went, went away again into their own home. What do you do when you find out Jesus is raised from the dead? I guess you go home. That's what they did. But Mary stood without the, at the sepulcher, so she's followed them back to the grave. 
She stood without or outside at the sepulcher weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Now, don't confuse this with the angels that that, uh, Matthew and Luke talk about, because those were angels that were outside the sepulcher. So you've got angels doing all kinds of things during this event. John doesn't give us all the information, but he gives us a little bit. And so it says, and when they, then they said unto her, woman, why weepest thou? She said unto them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. Please notice that she's not convinced of the resurrection of Jesus. She thinks somebody has somehow gotten him out of this thing and taken him off. She's not looking around saying, oh, glory to God, Jesus is raised from the dead. Yet the Bible tells us that after the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus plainly began to tell them, not in riddles, not in parables, not in any other thing that was uh, hidden or or, uh, something they couldn't understand. He plainly began to teach them that he was going to Jerusalem, going to be killed and going to be raised again the third day. Why didn't they get that? None of them were in on that. Now, folks, you got to realize... These guys have a working knowledge, not like the rabbis that uh, that knew it backwards and forwards, but they had a working knowledge of the Old Testament. Every child, as a part of his education, and, and Israel has always been big on education, was taught the Scriptures from the beginning. Now, the resurrection of Jesus can be seen in a number of different stories in the Old Testament. One, maybe maybe the most uh, obvious, is the story of Isaac being offered on the altar by his father Abraham. Now, if you look at the story closely, you'll find out that God spoke to Abraham and said, offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And so Abraham takes off on a journey, and that journey is three days. And on the third day from home, the Lord speaks to him and says, that's the mountain to offer him on. So they go up on the mountain. You remember the story. He lays Isaac out on the altar, prepares to uh, uh, to kill him. Abraham knows full well that he's got to come off that mountain. He's told people, we're both going to return. Hebrews chapter 11 says he even received him as uh, in a figure as raised from the dead. Abraham knows no matter what happens, this kid's got to live because this kid is is the very thing, the very one that God said all nations of the earth shall be blessed through. So he knows he cannot die. Or if he dies, he's got to rise from the dead. Now, I'm sure that's hard for a man to understand. I'm sure that's hard for a man to comprehend. But at least he got there. Maybe another story, the one that Jesus identified was Jonah and the fish. He said that the sign of Jonah would be the sign to the world. That he was the son of God. And that he was raised from the dead. Why didn't these guys get that? Were they so grief stricken? Had the events of the last few days so rattled them? That they, nobody stopped to think, wait a minute, what was that he was telling us about his, his death and his resurrection? Didn't he say that he was going to be raised from the dead? Didn't he say, didn't he tell us? Why didn't they get that? That's a question I want to know when I get to heaven. I'm sure there's a simple answer for it. Maybe I wouldn't have done any differently than they did, and that's fine. I'm satisfied with that answer, but I really want to know. Because Jesus plainly told them. But Mary doesn't get it either. It's not these are just dumb men. She didn't get it either. She's thinking that somebody has taken him away. And when she had thus said, verse 14, she turned herself back. In other words, she turned around, turned away from the the sepulcher. 
and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Now, folks, please understand something. Jesus did not look like the same person when he was raised from the dead that he did, that he looked like going to the cross. Over and over and over again, the disciples see him. The two men on the road to Emmaus, they didn't know who Jesus was. Why? You can't just say God blinded their eyes. Why would he have, why would he want to do that? Why would God blind people's eyes? The resurrected Jesus looked different than Jesus, the son of man on the earth. Had to. Absolutely had to. So she didn't know it was Jesus. And Jesus said unto her, woman, why weepest thou? Notice he speaks generally to her as God would speak to his creation. Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? I love that question. What are you crying for? Who are you looking for? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said unto him, Sir, if thou hast borne him hence, if you're the one who took him away, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said unto her, Now notice how he speaks to her. He speaks to her as personal. He speaks to her as her redeemer. He said unto her, Mary. And she turned herself and said unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Notice it was her, it was his voice that caused her to know who he was. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 10, My sheep hear and know my voice. And a stranger they'll not follow. I think too many times we're like Mary. We're looking for physical evidence. But Jesus said it was my voice that will cause you to know who I am. That means you can't know Jesus without knowing the word. Because the word of God, that book that contains the word of God that you're holding in your lap or next to you, is the voice of Jesus. Jesus said unto her, verse 17, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend. The word ascend literally means I am ascending. It's a present participle. It means I'm in the process. I am ascending. Go say unto them, I am ascending unto my Father and your Father and to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things unto her. Notice John doesn't say anything about the discussions that took place from that point. That's the part I'd like to know. Okay, what happened when Mary told you this? Surely y'all talked about it. What'd you say? Who said yes? Who said no? Who said, oh, you got to be kidding? I'd want to know that. John didn't tell us any of that stuff. Then it tells us about Jesus. Because the focus is not them. The focus is on Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. Then it says in verse 19, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Now the uh, doors being shut, the the word shut literally means in the Greek, it means they were barred. That means they have propped the furniture up against the door. They padlocked it. They've done whatever they can to keep the Jews out. Then came Jesus in the midst of them and stood and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his, his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. If there is an understatement in any of John's writings, that's got to be it. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Are you kidding me? Surely somebody fainted. But notice how he just plays it down because it's not about them. It's about Jesus. Then said Jesus to them, peace be unto you. As my father has sent me, even so send I you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, receive you the Holy Ghost. See the word breathe there? It's not used any other place in the New Testament. What is interesting and I think significant 
is that in the Septuagint, now the Septuagint, you've heard me talk about that before, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew. It was the Bible of Jesus' day. It was the Bible that the common man used in Jesus' day because they all spoke Greek. And so in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, this is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 where it says God breathed into Adam and he became a living soul. So it's interesting to me that whereas this word is not used any other place in the Greek language in the New Testament, the word breathed is the same word that's talking about when the creation of man occurred and man first became alive. Now man becomes alive again. And he breathed on them and said, receive you the Holy Ghost. Notice what this uh, Holy Ghost reception is about or connected with. He said, whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. So please notice he said, receive you the Holy Ghost in connection with the remission of sins. In other words, these guys got saved. Verse 24, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. You know the story of this. We're going to go through it real quick. But why is, why is Paul, uh, what's his name? John. Why is John telling us about Thomas? What's his purpose for telling us about Thomas? Folks, it's not about Thomas. He's telling us by the Holy Ghost what happens when you believe and what happens when you refuse to believe. Thomas is one of the twelve. Jesus loves him just like he loves any of the others. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. I guess only the ten were there. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. Please notice what it says. It says, I will not believe. He didn't say, I can't believe. He didn't say, guys, this sounds great, but I can't believe unless I see. He says, unless I see it and touch it, I will not believe. Faith is always a choice. Don't ever say you can't believe something. Be honest and say you won't. You can believe anything the Word says. And after eight days again, the disciples were within, and Thomas was with them this time. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, first thing that that John gives us record of, as he addresses Thomas. He knows what Thomas has said, and Jesus waited eight days to fix his situation. Do you realize if Jesus had not appeared this time, Thomas would have been unsaved, even though he was one of the twelve? Being one of the twelve didn't, didn't guarantee salvation. Faith is the means of salvation. Faith is the means of receiving anything from God. Then said he to Thomas, Reach hither thy finger and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless but believing. Notice what, what the position of I will not believe is called. God calls it faithless. That's a good thing to keep in mind. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you believe that Jesus is raised from the dead and you confess him as Lord, then you're saved. That's what Those are the acts that bring about salvation. It's the two legs of salvation, to believe God raised Jesus from the dead and to confess him as Lord. That's exactly what Thomas does here. So Thomas receives the same result as the other ten did, when Jesus appeared to him and breathed on him and said, Receive the Holy Ghost. 
he gets exactly the same result because he chose what he, because he changed what he chose to believe in. And notice what Jesus says. Oh, finally, Thomas, we've been waiting for you to come in. You were the last one. Now, notice what Jesus says to him. Thomas, because you have seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Notice the blessing is not by seeing. Even though the seeing may cause you to believe, that's not what the blessing is. The blessing is for those who have not seen and choose to believe. Verse 30, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Notice why John is telling them he wrote the story, that believing you might have life through his name. Here's the reason John wrote the book. Here's the reason John wrote his account, his gospel account. That's why he tells us about Thomas. Because he knows that there are people, just as in his his day, just as there are today, that are waiting to see something before they believe. And he said that Jesus said, he gives us an eyewitness account that Jesus said, the blessing doesn't come from seeing, it comes from believing without seeing. Chapter 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee. That's the Tiberias is the Roman name for Galilee. And on this wise, he showed himself. When they were together, there were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two of his other disciples. Simon Peter said unto them, I go a fishing. And they said unto him, we'll also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Now, chapter 21, chapter 20 is all about the resurrection. And John ends that by saying there were a lot of other things Jesus said, a lot of other things Jesus did, but the important thing is that you might believe that he's risen from the dead and that believing you might have life on his name. That's the whole purpose that he writes these things. That's the reason that he omits the other things so that he can emphasize that point. That seems to be what the Holy Ghost is inspiring John to write and the reason that he inspires them to write. Chapter 21 is all about serving God. The theme of chapter 21 is all about how to serve God. Now, notice it's divided into sections. The first thing it tells us is how people are, are uh, naturally inclined to serve him in the flesh. Jesus is risen from the dead. They know he's alive. They know the change has taken place in them. They know they're different. They've, they've now become new creatures in Christ Jesus. They may not know what that means, but they know some kind of change has taken place. So what are they going to do? Peter says, I'm going fishing. Well, now fishing is something that Peter was accustomed to. He was a fisherman before Jesus found him. But do you remember when Jesus first found Peter in Luke chapter 5? Peter was fishing. And Jesus offered, to, asked to use his boat. And he used it, he let him use the boat, and then he said to him, let's go out a little further to catch fish. And Peter said, no, it's the wrong time of day to catch fish. We've been working all night long and hadn't caught anything. And Jesus said, we'll let down the net on this side of the boat. And Peter says, well, this is just stupid. This is this breaks all the fishing rules. I'm a professional fisherman. I'm a commercial fisherman. Obviously, you don't know anything about fishing, but nevertheless, that's your word. I'll let down the net. And he gets the biggest catch of fish he ever had in his life. You remember? After that... Jesus told him, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So now Peter says, I'm going back to what I know. But he's doing it on his own power. He's doing it in the flesh. And notice that working or trying to serve God in the flesh doesn't produce anything. 
You work hard. You work long hours. But it doesn't produce anything. Same thing as when he did, when Jesus first found it. So it says, the morning was now come. Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said unto them, children, have you any meat? Did you catch anything? And they answered him, no. And he said, cast the net on the right side of the ship and you'll find. They cast, therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of the fishes. Notice you can do the same work that you're accustomed to doing, but doing it at the direction of the Lord, serving God in the will of God or in the will that the Lord, the will of God as he describes it to you or directs you. And notice you get supernatural results. They're not doing anything different now when Jesus told them to cast it on the other side of the boat than they've been doing all night long. He didn't say, no, you guys don't know how to fish. I've got to retrain you for fishing. He says, do what you know to do, but in this spot. And they got a net breaking boatload of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said unto Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's goat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. He grabbed whatever clothes he could and jumped out of the boat. Peter's always jumping out of boats. I don't know what he was expecting this time. He didn't walk on the water on this occasion, but he's going to get to Jesus. I love this Peter. He is something. He messes up more than anybody you can imagine, but he's always right there trying to get back in, in the right spot. He won't give up. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it was 200 cubits, dragging the net with fishes. It took another boat to get that load of fish in. As soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid thereon and bread. Can I ask you a question? Where did Jesus get the fish? Where did Jesus get the bread? This is the first recorded, the only recorded miracle after Jesus' resurrection. Now, let me qualify that. I would submit to you that every time Jesus appeared, it was a, it was a miracle. When he appeared behind closed doors, walking through closed doors just to appear, that's divine intervention into the ordinary course of nature, which is the definition of a miracle. But here's the only miracle that Jesus performed. Here's the only miracle that Jesus did something after his resurrection that the Bible tells us about, and John's the one that records it. He's got his own fish and bread for what purpose? Remember, we're talking about serving God, serve him in the flesh, work hard but don't get anything, serve him at his direction, and you get supernatural results. A part of serving God is provision. God provides for those that serve him when they serve him according to his will. He's there to feed them. He didn't ask them to take of their fish. He gives to them after they've been successful in catching because they obeyed his word. Jesus said unto them, Bring ye of the fish which you had now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, 153. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. You know what, Can I show you something else here? Here's something else about serving God. They've had a boatload of people. Notice it says how many people there were to begin with in verse 2. There was Simon Peter, there was Thomas, there was Nathaniel, there were the sons of Zebedee, two other guys, and two other of his disciples. There's seven people in the one boat when they catch the fish, and they can't get it into the boat. Once they catch this big load of fish, they can't get into the boat. It takes another boat full of people going in to drag the net between the two boats to the shore. But then Jesus says to Peter, go bring me the fish. And Peter goes by himself and pulls the net in. He does what at least eight people could not do on their own. 
Here's something else about serving God. When God tells you to do something, it doesn't matter how impossible it seems. It doesn't matter how ill-equipped you may seem to be. You can get results. That's why John tells us how many fish were in there. Anybody that knows anything about fishing in those days and in those parts, that part of the world would know, naturally, you can't drag a, fi- a, drag a net in with 153 fish by yourself. But Peter did because Jesus told him to do it. And Jesus said unto them, come and dine. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Why did they want to ask, who are you? Because he doesn't look the same. They're still trying to know him after the flesh. And from the resurrection forward, there is no knowing Jesus after the flesh. Now, for us, it doesn't have the same application because we never saw him in the flesh. But for us, what that means is you can't know him through natural circumstance. You're not going to know God by the things that happen in the natural realm. You're only going to know God by his voice. You're only going to know the Lord by what he says. In other words, by the word of God. Jesus then came and took bread and gave gave them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. The Bible tells us if you put the four Gospels together, there's 11 times that Jesus um, appeared to the disciples between his resurrection and his ascension, his ascension that took place in Acts chapter 1. 11 times. John gives us three of them. Now, after that, he appeared to certain other people. Um, Paul said that he appeared to, to James. He appeared to Peter again after this. And then lastly, appeared to him 14 times. The 15th time Jesus appears is when he comes back for the church. So when they had dined, verse 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Now, what are the, who are the these he's talking about? Most people assume that he's saying, do you love me more than the other disciples? Do you love me more than the other ten that are left? Well, can I ask you, does God ever put us in competition with somebody else for loving him? Wouldn't that be contrary to the character and the nature of God? When he says, lovest thou me more than these, he's talking about the fish. This, these fish represent great riches. Peter could go sell these fish and come out ahead, way ahead. He's saying, do you love me more than the world? Do you love me more than anything that's in the world? Now, why is this significant? Because Peter has just denied Jesus a couple of days before, three times out of fear of what other people will think and what might happen to him as a result. In other words, he's more concerned about himself and his well-being. Now Jesus is saying, now that you've been born again, now that you've changed, now that I've breathed upon you and the Holy Ghost has come inside of you to live, now that you know for sure that I'm alive and you've seen that the power that you once knew in me is still operable through the catch of the fish, do you love me more than the stuff, than the things of the world? And Peter said, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he said unto him, feed my lambs. He said unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He said unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And he said unto him, Feed my sheep. Then he said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? I think Peter's probably remembering when he denied him three times, and now Jesus is questioning him three times. Peter's probably thinking, Can't we move past this? Lord, I've already told you I'm sorry. Can't we just forget that happened? 
Jesus asked him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus said unto him, feed my sheep. Now, this section shows us something about serving God. There's only one motivation and one qualification for serving God, and that is loving him. And notice that Jesus is saying, if you love me, take care of people. The way you love me is not to say, oh, Jesus, I love you so much. The way to love me is to take care of the people that I came for. Again, he's talking about how to serve the motivation of love. Finally, in verse 18, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest where the, whether thou wouldest. But thou, when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands and another shall gird thee and shall carry thee whether thou wouldest not. Peter, you've always been your own man. You've always done what you wanted to do and gone where you wanted to go. And it showed up in all the mistakes you made. But I've just questioned you three times about loving me and you assured me that you do. You need to know. It's going to be tough. Even the end of your life will be something that you don't want to happen in the manner in which it takes place. You're going to have to decide that your care for yourself, which was the reason you denied me several days ago, is put aside if you're really going to serve me. Peter, being natural, hasn't lost all of the things that he's going to have to wear off over the years. Verse 19, this spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said unto him, follow me. In other words, don't worry about how tough it is. You follow me. You do what I told you to do. And don't be distracted from it. Then Peter, turning about, seeing the disciple whom Jesus loved, following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? He's talking about the last supper. Peter, seeing him, John and said to the said to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? And Jesus tells him the last thing that's important to know about serving, and that is you're going to have to forget about competing with somebody else. He said unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? Follow thou me. In other words, what difference does it make how I use somebody else? How does that affect you? Your job is to follow me, and your only job is to follow me. Not follow me if you're doing if you're doing it as well as the other guy. But just follow me. Then went this saying abroad among brethren that the disciples should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, he shall not die. People always mess up the story. People start saying, oh, Jesus said that John wouldn't die. John said he didn't say that. He just said, if I will that he tarries till I come, what is that to you? Now, again, at this point in time, John's in his 90s probably 90 years old or so, maybe older, depending on when it was written. And as a result, he's the last of the disciples by a long shot. And he's had some experiences where they've tried to kill him. And that didn't work. Finally, they exile him. They tried to boil him in oil, and that didn't work. They tried to saw him in half. That didn't work. Finally, they say, well, just send this guy away. So there may have been a lot of people still saying, John will never die. And John's the one that says, that's not what Jesus said, guys. He just said, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things. 
and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. Notice how he finishes. John finishes by saying, this isn't even part of what Jesus did. I've just told you a couple of things. There are other things that I've omitted that the other gospel writers told you about. But if you put all these things together, they don't even scratch the surface of the stuff that Jesus said and did. Notice what John leaves us with. John leaves us with instructions of how to serve him and a recognition that the power of God is greater than any story we've ever heard, any story that's ever been told, that Jesus is still preeminent, Jesus is still greater than anything that could possibly be told about him. Jesus was the Son of God. Still is, folks. His power is still working. His power is still real. Miracles are just as real now as they ever were in Jesus' day. The power of God is just as accessible now as it was when Jesus operated in it. Because Jesus prayed himself that you would be one with the Father and that you'd do the same works that he did. How many of you think that Jesus gets his prayers answered? That's what he prayed for you. It's impossible for it not to be true. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is true, Lord. Thank you for the privilege that we have to believe. Even as your word says, Father, these things were written that we would believe and know. We thank you, Father, because we do believe. And we have known in a measure the greatness of God and the greatness of your power. Father, we're not satisfied. We're not satisfied till we are whole and mature and fully developed in the character and the nature of God, fully developed in love, will not be satisfied till we do the same works as Jesus did in every situation where the enemy arises. We'll not be satisfied, Father, without an outpouring of the Holy Ghost in the same measure that we saw it in Jesus' life and his ministry. Thank you, Father, for doing great and miraculous things in these last days. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. 7.56 and we finished two chapters. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.